Yahweh, we just come before you tonight, um, ready to go into your word. And I just pray that you open up our hearts and minds to who you are. And I just pray that you would reveal yourself through this book, um, this book that reveals who you are and your desire and your commentary, so speak more than any other book. And I just pray that um, you would just speak through us, or speak through me, to them, and that you would clearly come out in this book. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the book of Deuteronomy. It is probably, with Leviticus, one of the least read books in the entire Bible by people, um, which is understandable. But it's also interesting because Deuteronomy is, reveals the heart of God probably more than any other book in the entire Bible. It basically is a commentary on the other first four books of the Bible. And it basically is Moses and God going back through the first three books, mostly numbers, and kind of giving God's commentary. And here's where God shares his heart of really what the law was meant to be, what they, how we are truly meant to respond, all that kind of stuff. And yes, there are laws in here, and that can make it somewhat difficult for people. But, and interesting too, it is also the most quoted book in the Second Testament. The Second Testament quotes the Deuteronomy more than any other book. Psalms is second. And it is quoted by Christ in his ministry more than any other book. And it is from Deuteronomy that his three quotations refuting Satan and the wilderness also come from. So it was the primary reference that he used to refute and drive away the devil and his temptations. And it is, becomes the book that is the foundation for every other book in the Bible. Without understanding Deuteronomy, there really is no grasping the other books and their, their, their true depths and that kind of stuff. Because even the First Testament books make allusions and reference back to Deuteronomy so many times. So if there's any book that every other book literally in the entire Bible, except for the first four because their Deuteronomy wasn't written yet, they go back to Deuteronomy more than any other book. The title of the book Deuteronomy comes from the first two words of the book translated, these are the words. So in the Hebrew, the book literally, the title is these are the words. And the reason it's called these are the words is because these are the words of Moses. He's giving three speeches in this book. But in our English translation, the title Deuteronomy comes from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew, and they give it the title Deuteronomy based on a passage in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. And here it says that Yahweh was give, told them to make a copy of this law. So as in the first five books of the Bible. So Yahweh comes in in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, and says, make a copy of this law. Unfortunately, the early Greek scribes misunderstood that and thought it meant a second law. Make This is a second law. And to addition to um, Leviticus and Exodus and all that kind of stuff. And that's where we get Deuteronomy. Deutero is second and namas is law. So it's a second law. But that's totally wrong. This is not a second law. It is God has never had an intention. It's actually a commentary or even a ratification of the first law. And so God is mostly interested in you copying this law, not adding a second one to your library. 
Obviously, Moses is the author of this, obviously, but however, there is always somebody out there who disputes the authorship of every single book. Um, but if you're really interested in that, that's really kind of, even in my opinion, a boring conversation. Um, but there's other things out there. So. so once again, the book of Genesis begins, and when we get to the book of Exodus, the first word of Exodus is and. It's a vivic toll. And this from... Um, the first word of Leviticus is and, and the first word of Numbers is and, but not Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy breaks that cycle, and I kind of mentioned this at the end of the Numbers study, but Deuteronomy is this limbo book, or not a limbo book, that's not a good word. Deuteronomy is a pivotal book, and it pivots between the Torah and going into what's called the Deuteronomic history. And so the Torah is God basically revealing who he is in creation, choosing his chosen people, and training them and equipping them and bringing them to the promised land. Deuteronomy is the end of the Torah. It brings the Torah to a conclusion. It's Moses' three farewell speeches. He gives three speeches where he basically kind of like, the first one he goes through the history of Israel and about how they screwed up all the time. And then in the second speech, he talks about the law, and what the law really means. And in the third speech, he kind of lays out all the blessings and the curses if you kind of mess up, and what's going to happen to you if you obey, and what happens to you if you disobey. And then he passes the torch off to Joshua, and then Joshua actually brings him into the promised land. So in that way, it finishes and wraps up the Torah and is very much considered the Torah itself. However, it's also not beginning with an and, so it's seen as the beginning of a whole new series of histories. And... It begins because this is going to be, like I already mentioned, the foundation for every other book that comes after that, of the historical books. So when we get to Joshua, it begins with an and, and Judges begins with an and, and Ruth begins with an and, and Samuel begins with an and, and Kings, and all the way through to Chronicles. And they all begin with an and, and this is what scholars call the Deuteronomic history. And the Deuteronomic history is a history that is literally built on the foundation of Deuteronomy. It is Israel living out everything that God reveals in Deuteronomy and or not living out everything that God is living in Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy becomes the foundation and the driving force for how God deals with everybody. So when we get to the book of Joshua and they're obedient, God will keep going back to Deuteronomy for the reasons why he blesses them. When you get to Judges and they're not obedient, He's going to keep going back to Deuteronomy for why he has the right to punish them and what those punishments look like. And then when we get to the kings, who just screwed up big time, he keeps going back to Deuteronomy as the foundation by which he's going to judge them, why they're failing, and then why he has every right to punish them. And so Deuteronomy becomes the guiding principle in all these other books. And as you go through these other books, it's amazing how many references back to Deuteronomy there are. So they are literally on the border of the promised land. And Moses has been excommunicated from the promised land, so to speak. Joshua's going to take the torch, and he's going to bring them into the promised land. But before that happens, Moses just has a few words to say to them, like I already mentioned, about what they must do before they go into this land. So all these speeches, the people are standing for these, and they're listening to Moses give these speeches through all of this, and he's really trying to shape them for the future. And that's kind of what we're going to go through. 
the structure of Deuteronomy is what's called a suzerian vassal treaty. A suzerian vassal treaty is suzerian is a word that is used to describe kings. And a vassal is a servant, someone who owes their allegiance or their obedience to the king. There are two types of suzerain vassal treaties in the ancient world, and these were prolific in the ancient world. The first one was where it's a grant treaty where the overlord promises to protect the rights of the servant. So the servant comes in and says, we will pay taxes, we will work for you in the land, and the king then agrees to say that I will then protect you. I'll protect you financially from famines. I'll protect you from enemies that try to invade you. And even though in most of these places in the ancient world didn't have city walls, but the implication is you're welcome in my city walls, so to speak, for protection. And so it becomes a covenant between the king and the people where the king promises to take care of them. The, probably the closest thing we have to this day would be like the Magna Carta, from early European days, and even some of the Constitution a little bit. The idea that the government is here to protect and take care of the people. The second time, the second type of a suzerain vassal treaty is where a king has come in and either conquered a people or taken a people under his wing, and he doesn't know who they are. He's not very familiar with who they are. So he's conquered them. They now belong to him, but he doesn't know whether he can trust them. He doesn't know whether they're going to be faithful to him. So he forces them under this treaty where basically he says, you have obligations to me. And the idea is if they meet these obligations over time, then maybe they can enter into the first type of a suzerain vassal treaty. Deuteronomy is the second type. It is the second time it is the type is that God is the king of the universe. And he's taken on a group of people that, unlike other treaties, it's not that he doesn't know who they are. He just knows that he can't trust them. And so he's putting certain obligations on them and saying, if you want to reap the benefits of this covenant and this relationship, then here are your obligations. And it's because he knows their history. He knows who they are. And so this is a basically where a king is coming in and bringing the people under into his community and saying, these are your obligations if you're going to reap the benefits of this treaty. There are about five parts to a suzerain vassal treaty, and Deuteronomy is structured on those five parts. So the first one, the first part of a suzerain vassal treaty is the preamble. The preamble is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And the preamble gives the purpose of the covenant and identifies the parties of the covenant. And in this case, Yahweh and Israel with Moses as the mediator. So the opening is, this is why we're doing the covenant. And here are the two parties in the covenant. So Moses says, I am the mediator. Yahweh is one side. You're the other side. And this is what we're having. So that's the preamble. The second part is the historical prologue. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6 through 4, verse 49. And this is to remind the vassal the great benefits the king has already bestowed upon them to motivate them to show undivided loyalty to the king in order to fulfill the covenant. So this is where the, the, the king goes through their history together, whatever history they have, and he reminds them about how much of a great king he's been to them. 
And so that's what we're going to find in the first four chapters of Deuteronomy. Moses is going to take us through the history of Egypt or Israel in the wilderness and mostly focusing on the amazing generosity, compassion, and grace of Yahweh to them. And this is basically Moses' first speech. So the second part of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty is Moses' first speech to the people. The third part is the stipulations of the treaty. So now that the king has told you how great he is and all the amazing things he's done for you, now you get to the stipulations of what he requires of them. And this is to protect the rights of the king against the disloyalty of the people. And it's interesting, we don't usually think that way. We think we, the people need their rights protected against the government. But no, here it's Yahweh's protecting his rights against his people who would like to abuse it and um, misrepresent them. This is found in Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 26. This is by far the largest section in Deuteronomy of what he requires of them. And this section is actually going to follow the Ten Commandments. So he's going to give a whole bunch of laws for the first commandment, a whole bunch of laws for the second commandment, and on and on and on. This is Moses' second speech. The fourth part is the covenant sanctions. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 30. And this gives the details of how the people of the covenant will be treated appropriately for their loyalty or disloyalty. This is a section with all the cursings and all the blessings. So this is where he says, like, okay, this is what will happen if you disobey me. These are the consequences. This is what will happen if you obey me. These are the consequences. And so that's the fourth part. But this is also Moses' third speech. This is where Deuteronomy differs from every other suzerain vassal treaty in the ancient world. In this case, it is following very closely to all those other treaties. Because remember, they would be familiar with these kind of treaties. So God is speaking the language they understand. But where it differs is that most of the treaties in the ancient world only have cursings. They don't really give any blessings of what happens if you're obedient. And we know that we're primarily motivated by judgments. Okay, most of our laws, even in America, are not the amazing things that America is going to do for you. All the tax breaks and all that kind of stuff, those are all hidden. Okay, most of the things in America are, if you're speeding, this is what will happen. If you kill, I mean, we are mostly motivated by consequences for bad behavior, not for rewards. Rewards, I know, and God knows, are much more powerful of a motivation, but they don't seem to work that much with a sinful desire that thinks, yeah, but I really just like to do what I want to do. So I'm willing to, even my daughter, like, if we say, if you don't eat all your food, you're not going to get a special treat. And not that we do that every night because we don't want them to be motivated that. Our first two oldest daughters are like, oh, oh. And all of a sudden they're like liking the food. My third daughter is like, oh, okay. <laughs> and she just gets up and walks away like, I'm done. It's like, <laughs> it's like she doesn't care about the special treat. She's not motivated by it. I mean, if you give it to her, she'll like gobble up no problem. But her desire to do what she wants is far greater than any kind of reward. So, so and that's kind of how it is with us a lot of times too. And so that's what he gives here. So here, God actually gives blessings. Now, there's still way more cursings than blessings, even in Deuteronomy. But this is unusual of any suzerain vassal tree in the ancient world to actually find blessings. And that itself just powerfully... Um, sets Yahweh apart in his character from every other king. 
The fifth part is the dynastic disposition. And this is chapters 31 through 34. And this is where the king would make sure that there was a successor in place. If something were to happen to him, the successor would be bound by the treaty as well. So at the very end of the treaty, he basically names the successor. And he basically says, if anything happens to me, then this guy is also bound by the same treaty. He's not bound by it until I die, but if I die, he is bound. And you're owing your obligations to him, and he will deal with you accordingly um, on that as well. So this is where you name your successor. Here, this is where Joshua is named. He's already been named, but this is where he's officially written into the covenant. Kind of like the best way is he's been named in the past, but there's no guarantee. Now he's actually written into the will, into the inheritance, so to speak, that he is going to become the leader if anything were to happen. And so then he takes responsibility for the covenant and a certain continuing failure. Now what's different here is that the other thing that makes this a little bit different is God's not going anywhere. And technically the king is not Moses or Joshua. The king is Yahweh. However, Yahweh being a non-tangible, non-physical creature in our universe chooses a physical representation for himself. And so that's more of what the role of Joshua is playing. So what is the purpose of Deuteronomy? There's two major purposes of Deuteronomy. The first is um, the source of the covenant is bound, bond lies solely in Yahweh. Yahweh is the source here. Yahweh is the primary source, the primary life of this. So the purpose of Deuteronomy was to teach Israel that it was, imp- what, that it was in love that the covenant was initiated by Yahweh in the first place and by love, the people were to maintain their close relationship to Yahweh. So the first purpose is that Yahweh is the one who initiated this covenant with a motivation of love. Therefore, they were to respond in love. Deuteronomy is actually rallying big time against legalistic obligation and obedience. Deuteronomy is big time anti-legalism. It's big time anti-behaviorism. It's even anti-doing it just for reward. The main motivation, the main purpose of Deuteronomy is God's making argument that I first love you. I chose you. I saved you. I redeemed you when no one else would. I took care of you when nobody else would. I didn't abandon you unlike every other guy would have abandoned you. And therefore, I have demonstrated my unconditional, undying, chesed love, loving kindness, that you then, I want you to respond in love. I don't want you to do it for the reward. I, want you to, I don't want you to do it because you're afraid of getting punished. I don't want you to do it because behaviorism is expected of you or legalism. I want you to do it because you love me, period. That's your motivation. So the main purpose of Deuteronomy is arguing for that this is a covenant of love. And he responded, initiated with love there to respond with love. And so this flies in the face of all legalism and all behaviorism that pretty much dominates the American church. And which is interesting, we also don't read Deuteronomy either. So that's the first and primary purpose. It's, it also goes a way to make sure that the people know that this covenant is not to be seen as a legal contract automatically binding them either. 
Okay, in Deuteronomy, God is clearly revealing He wants them to, He's not putting a gun to anybody's head and forcing them into this covenant. He doesn't want that. And, and here's the thing, like, this flies in the face of this predestination, choosing people for heaven and choosing people for hell against their will. Because Deuteronomy, moved, moved in this love is, if he's forcing you into this, then you can't respond in love. And so Deuteronomy is really pretty much arguing that this is not a legal contract that you're automatically bound into. Every generation has the right to choose whether they want to be in the, con- the covenant or not. And that's going to be one of the requirements is that every single generation is to renew this covenant. You're not in it because you're forced into it by Yahweh, and you're not in it just because your parents were in it. It is renewable every generation. Now, however, if you choose not to be in it, you're not allowed to live in Yahweh's land, so to speak. Um, not that he'll kick you out, but if you're shaking your fist, so to speak, then you're not allowed to reap the blessings or that kind of stuff. But that's no different than anything. Okay, You're free to join any kind of community that you want. But if you say, I'm not going to obey by these rules, then you're not allowed in the community. And so, they, and there's plenty of other, other countries in the world for them to go to. And so he's not trying to bind them. Rather, the nature of the covenant demands humans to be loving commitment. He wants everybody to be in this community because they chose through their own choice to be a part of it. This brings the second purpose of Deuteronomy. The second purpose was to teach Israel the need to remember what Yahweh had done for them in the past and to teach their children through the generations so they could have a full and blessed life in the land. Remembrance is a huge driving thing in the book of Deuteronomy. And there's a huge requirement, huge repetitionist theme of remember, 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 remember. The key, the key to a successful, joyful Christian life is remembrance. The Christian who is not remembering what Yahweh has done and is not grateful will not be obedient, will not truly love him. It's the same thing with any couple. The couple who does not remember all the good times that they have together are not going to really be connected and bound together in the present and the future. And so Deuteronomy is really calling you to remember, 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 remember. And this is, we know, the great Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love him with all your heart and soul and strength. But you have to realize that that is... That's like the yolk and the egg. The whole entire packaging is remember, 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 remember. The reality is God hits us big time. And he talks about binding things to your house, to your body, building monuments and memorials, anything that you need to do to remember. And, and that's something that the church is not good at. Okay? I, I think lots of churches do lots of great jobs with worship services and that kind of stuff. But people don't really share their testimonies that much at church. We don't really hear. I mean, yeah, we have these songs, but sometimes these songs can be kind of disembodied if you're coming in from a hectic day. And your testimony is not just how I became a Christian. For a lot of us, for most of us, that was a long time ago. And God can use that, but it doesn't really feel relevant to a lot of people now. Your testimony is what God has been doing in my life in the last week or in the last month or in the last year like how is he real to me now how am i experiencing now 
in this world of people dying and losing jobs and suffering with physical ailments and all this kind of stuff, or I don't know what to do with my children or whatever. What is God doing to get me through that? And that's what God is really focusing on here, is that this needs to be a huge part of our church's DNA, our small groups, our, our life, your, your journaling, your, your music writing, your art, whatever you do, this needs to permeate whatever you create, whatever you do, whatever you do when you get together and gather together because it is when we remember what God has done in our life, what he's done in the Bible, and what he's doing in each other's lives, that's when God becomes more alive. And that's when he becomes more real. And Deuteronomy really hits that hard. And the second part of that first purpose is then the teaching your children. He really hits that one hard. And we're going to learn that as Joshua's generation was an incredibly faithful, obedient generation. They failed miserably to teach their children. They lived it, but they didn't teach it. And their next generation ended up drastically dropping the ball and going downhill very quickly in the book of Judges. And so, and if you've ever gone through Judges, it is messed up. And so the reality is, he really presses upon you. And we're going to talk about that, that there's this... You, you think the, the commandment, children, honor your mother and father, is like the commandment. But in Deuteronomy, he makes it clear that's not actually the entirety of the commandment. The entirety of the commandment is that children are honoring their mother and father and listening because the mother and the father have been living it out and teaching it. Now, Deuteronomy is not saying that you only honor your mother and father when they live it out and that kind of stuff. But the idea is it's more reciprocal and mutual than oftentimes we quote it. Like, honor your mother and father, just obey me. Well, it actually implies that the children are, it's easy for them to honor you because you're actually living it out and it's a part of your life and it's part of your vocabulary and part of your speech. And, and even though you are not doing a good job as a parent, they're still expected to honor you, but you've made it incredibly hard for them to honor you. And so the reality is, and, and as a high school teacher, I know a lot of families that they're very godly and they're very involved in ministry and stuff, but at home the kids see a whole different God's not real. And and they're and they and they tell me that. And it's hard for them to grasp that. And so the reality is this is a huge part that need to teach. For the author of Deuteronomy, history is not a series of unbroken events, of cause and effects which are happening in a closed system, free of the intervention of a transcendent God. So he's going to go through history here. But for him, it's, as Americans, we think history is closed events. It's just us. And it's cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. For the other Deuteronomy, that's not cl- true. Rather, history reflects the will of Yahweh and the word and deed within creation of Yahweh. For Yahweh and the people of the ancient East history were, were not a scientific endeavor. History was not something you studied. History wasn't something you dissected. History wasn't something that you just tried to manipulate. For them, history was something where a divine God of the entire universe got involved in your lives. And he's directing and shaping and guiding you. And when you remove God from the picture, history becomes very empty and very meaningless. And that's how Deuteronomy is portraying history here. There are three major themes in the book of Deuteronomy. The first one is the uniqueness of Yahweh as a loving God. 
And these themes are kind of repetitious of the purpose. It's natural that you're going to see the purpose in these themes. So the uniqueness of Yahweh, and I mentioned this already, that unlike all the other kings or gods, he's actually intimately involved in their lives. Unlike them, he's actually pursued them to the ends of the earth. Unlike them, even when they violate this covenant, he's going to still keep maintaining the covenant. And unlike them, he's dealing out blessings in a way that they don't get blessings. The second theme is obedience is love. That obedience is not what you have to do. Obedience is not what is expected of you. Obedience is not reward or free of consequences. But obedience is what I do because I love you. And the last theme is remembrance is necessary. And this is carried out in two major ways. One, not only were the parents expected to teach their children every year, or all the time actually, every generation the parents were expected to renew the covenant with their children. So before the parents really passed off, they were to teach the children how to renew this covenant. So it wasn't like all the older generation die, and then the kids were like, oh, we've got to renew this thing. It was that the older generation gets older, and then they bring the younger generation, or now adults, and they take their children who are now adults through the renewing of the covenant. And they show them what the renewing looks like. And they show them why this God is worth renewing a covenant with. And the kids are willing to listen because they're honoring their parents. Because their parents are not just doing this at the end of their life because that's what you do. But because their parents have been living this covenant their entire life. And the kids see that. Now that doesn't mean that every single kid is going to honor their parent and jump in. But every kid is going to at least say, but my parents meant it, and they lived it. And when I'm rejecting it, I'm not rejecting this because my parents screwed up. I'm rejecting it because I'm rejecting God. And that's important. We cannot make our kids accept Christ. We cannot make them be involved. But I rather than reject it because they're truly rejecting Yahweh, and they know who he is because I've done a good job teaching, rather than rejecting it because I was a hypocrite and they don't know who Yahweh is because all they saw is me. Now, there's no way I could be perfect, but even in my failings, I can still demonstrate the character of God through repentance and confession and forgiveness and that kind of stuff. And that was the whole point here. The second way was that they were to continually teach their children, as we've already talked about. And we'll go through these themes. Obviously, they're themes, so we're going to keep coming to this over and over again as we go through the book. Does that make sense? Any questions, comments?